The US presidential election is less than a fortnight away, and Donald Trump and Joe Biden are pulling out all the stops to get the votes. But after a chaotic debate forced moderators to cut the candidates' mics to stop them interrupting each other, it's hard to get a grip on what messages they're actually trying to get across. Folks, do you have any idea what this clown's doing? Mr. Do you have any do? Socialized medicine. Mr. President. Let people know. You're a senator. I'm not going to answer the question because... Why would you answer that question? Because the question is... You want to put a lot of new Supreme Court justices, radical left... Who is on Listen, who is on your list, Joe? This Who's is on your so list? right, gentlemen. This is, I think this we've is ended so this. He's going to pack the court. We have end, no, no, not no. Give a list. We have ended this segment. We're going to move on. So, how have the different campaigns been selling themselves? Will Biden's attacks on Trump be a winning strategy? And how should progressives be pushing for change? As president, my goal to restore safety to our streets and to help these innocent Americans rebuild their lives and rebuild their lives very quickly. That's what. I'm here for. We're going to choose hope over fear. We're going to choose to move forward because we have enormous opportunities, enormous opportunities to make things better. In this episode of the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're asking who is winning the narrative war in the US election? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm super excited, as always, to be joined down the line by communications expert, principal at ASO Communications and returning friend of the pod, Anat Schenker Osario. Hi, Anat. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being with us. Can't wait to dive in. So you're an expert in messaging and comms. Let's start off by just asking you to outline for us what Trump and Biden's key messages have been during the election campaign. Just that, just a little one. <laughs> that assumes that they've had a key message. Um, well, so let me take half a step back and actually push back at your intro. I would say from the vantage point of an American, it's not actually one campaign being fought. There is a campaign being fought, a traditional one, where each candidate is attempting to put forward the reasons why they and their running mate should be selected. And there is a second campaign being fought around the legitimacy of having an election at all. Mm. There is a narrative battle on both fronts. So if I had to summarize it, I would say that Joe Biden is running and from all indicators winning a campaign to earn more votes. And Donald Trump is running and by all apparent indicators losing a campaign to keep people from voting. Mm. So you've mentioned that this is a moment of competing stories. Are they the stories that you're talking about or are they different stories? Yeah. So let's look on the side of the, let's say, traditional campaign, the thing that we are used to, which means each candidate, each campaign trying to put forward a story of what they stand for. Donald Trump is in a bit of a bind. He ran the first time on this notion of make America great again, as I'm sure everybody has heard at nauseum. And what that is, is a story about a, quote, beautiful tomorrow, an imagined better future, but that is constructed out of a nostalgia for the past, which has as its great boon that it requires zero imaginative power. All you have to do is think back to a, you know, rerun of some 1950s, early 1960s Americana show like Donna Reed or Father Knows Best. I don't know if this means anything to you. 
And you can imagine what that kind of America was. And that was the promise that Donald Trump was delivering. And in that storyline, he also had, as all good stories require, a set of nefarious villains, which was a combination of, quote, the swamp, politics as usual. And of course, everyone's favorite villain, the villain of time immemorial, some group that he has otherized. Now he's in a bit of a bind. He can't argue that he's supposed to make America great again because he's been at the helm for four years. And so for a brief moment, he had a story which was keep America great. But of course, that narrative doesn't work because most people aren't feeling that great about America. So all that to say, the main narrative thrust of Trump right now is a pretty straight law and order the lawless masses, and of course, all of the attendant dog-whistling, anti-immigrant, anti-Black rhetoric that we are accustomed to amped up on steroids. So basically, what he's promising is daddy. He's promising the strong arm of the law. He's promising order with a dash of the stock market is doing awesome, and if you elect Joe Biden, he will raise your taxes. That's basically his proposition. What Joe Biden is promising, to quote him verbatim, is build back better, which is, in my estimation, quite a convoluted notion. He understands and knows, because all of the polling tells us, that people don't want to go back to the way things were. They do not see 2015, 2016 as some sort of halcyon days. And so Biden can't make the argument that he's going to restore us back to an Obama past. People understand that we can't go back to business as usual because that is in fact what created this crisis and this problem and all of the pain people are feeling. And so he is promising some version of a beautiful tomorrow rooted heavily in his leaning on his younger, dynamic running mate, Kamala Harris, and that he will sort of bring decency, bring kindness, bring compassion, and bring some semblance of normalcy plus some improvement. It's a bit of a convoluted message, but that's basically kind of on the side of the more traditional campaign, that's the story. On the side of the other campaign, the campaign around whether or not the election itself is legitimate and whether or not people can be voting, should be voting, will be voting, that's a whole other story. Yeah, I do want to get into that. I want to dive into the messaging around this election and last election, the kind of more formal story, I guess, that you were telling before in a second. But yeah, let's stick with this for a minute, because I've also on this side of the pond been, you know, reading and and listening to a lot of really concerned commentators, you know, talking about exactly as you're alluding to uh, Donald Trump and the Trump campaign's consistent attempts to undermine the very notion of the possibility of free and fair election. So yeah, it would be great if you could just say a bit more about where that's coming from. And in your mind, it might be too big a question, but could you see that leading to, you know, as some pundits have claimed, a situation in which Donald Trump loses the election, refuses to step down, and there's essentially like a democratic collapse? Yeah. So that's a lot of questions. Let me try to unpack them. In a situation that, you know, (laughs) I mean, I think anyone who is prognosticating anything about anything at this point is kind of full of we should look askance at them because fair enough, fair enough. if ever all bets were off, it's right now. <laughs> so anyone who can think they know exactly what's going to happen, mm, not buying that very much. As far as what we do know, basically, on the first question that you asked, Donald Trump is trying to depress the vote. 
he's trying to get a progressive base to not want to vote, either because he is physically rendering it impossible by doing things like removing ballot drop-off. And and when I say Donald Trump, I mean that as sort of a category of Republicans and Republican election officials at the state level. I hope that's clear. I don't mean him just singularly on his own. He's aided and abetted by an entire cabal. So first of all, just making it physically challenging to vote, especially when we have COVID in full rampage and it being dangerous to go outside and be in physical proximity, making challenges to mail-in ballots, uh, making it difficult to have drop-off sites, endlessly long lines, all the stuff you're probably seeing on media, where it's just physically rendered very challenging. Making it difficult to get those votes counted, preemptive claims of fraud that this kind of vote cast is sort of not valid and votes that come by mail are somehow less secure when in fact they're scrutinized much, much more heavily. So the way that I see it and really the caution and the message that we've been driving is that when the left amplifies this, right, when we say there's a coup or he's an authoritarian, he's going to institute and implement authoritarianism, we're falling to dictatorship. What the research shows, and when I say research, I mean not just self-reporting, I mean actual experimental evidence where we, for example, send out masses of text messages and we look at who actually registers to vote. So behavioral metrics, field experiments, that message is demobilizing. It is causing our, what I like to call high potential voters, because I refuse to call them low propensity voters because we want to make our own reality. It's causing high potential voters to think, why even bother? The whole system is rigged. Why would I even try and overcome these ridiculous hurdles? And so what we've been pushing and what we've been cautioning is not to do Donald Trump's work for him. In essence, Donald Trump doesn't have to steal an election that he wins. And if he dissuades enough people from taking the necessary steps, which are in many, many cases and in many communities deliberately very challenging, then he can eke it out in a handful of states. Because, of course, in the United States, Elections aren't decided by the popular vote, as you probably are aware. So what we've been pushing and encouraging is a message that is rooted in our shared values and is rooted in this sense that we've done this before and we can do it again. Essentially, every vote counts. Count every vote. You can count on us. We're showing up in record numbers. We've proven that we pull through things by pulling together. And just as we've cared for each other through this pandemic, Just as we've marched in the streets to defend Black lives, we're going to turn out in mass to deliver our dreams. And then when we do talk about Trump, because we need to, to always ascribe motivation. So not merely to say they're trying to close off ballot drop-off boxes or they're trying to change the rules around when a mail-in ballot can be accepted, um, what the postmark date has to be. Instead of just merely describing what they're doing to always say why. So we're turning out in record numbers and we're showing up with and for each other like never before. Donald Trump knows he is losing this election. And that is why he is trying to sow chaos and keep us from voting at all. But we know better and we count on us. And we will turn out to ensure that every one of our voices is heard and every one of our votes is counted.
So that's the message. That's really the narrative battle that we've been pushing, that we need to remember that we're still in a period in which we need to be mobilizing people. Mm. So is that the Our Future Minnesota research that you've been doing, or is that something else? That's a broader landscape across lots and lots and lots of battleground states, states where the margins are really, really close and the election is really going to come down to. So that's Wisconsin, it's Pennsylvania, it's North Carolina, it's Georgia, increasingly it's Florida, it's Texas, Arizona, Ohio is now in play in ways that we didn't think it was going to be, Michigan. It's all of the states that are right at that knife edge of going either way. So some of the points in that research that you've also touched on already, uh, this idea of kind of using shared values as a starting point, and then progressives having a better understanding of what the middle is. Could you speak a little bit to those two points? Yeah, totally. So fundamentally, the kind of basis for all of the messaging research, whether it be about an issue, whether it be about a candidate, whether it be about this question around the election itself, how we talk about the election itself and what's going to happen and how it's going to proceed, comes from a finding that messages that begin by belaboring problems do not work. Basically, when we begin our opening salvo as some permutation of, boy, have I got a problem for you, for the majority of apolitical people, and by apolitical people, I mean both our disaffected base, so people who are ideologically aligned with a progressive worldview, but just not that interested in politics for one reason or another, and for the middle, people who toggle between competing views of the way the world works, that you know, this is the Titanic, would you like to buy a ticket, is really not that effective a hello. They got 99 problems and they don't want ours. So what we find is that instead, a message that opens with a shared value. So let's take, for example, you want a message about wages. Instead of saying, you know, the rent is too damn high, or they're not paying us enough, poverty is at its highest rate in however many years, instead of beginning that way, we say, no matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us believe that people who work for a living ought to earn a living. Or if we're going to have a message about healthcare, to take another for instance, we say, whether you're white, black, or brown, native or newcomer, young or old, when someone you love is ill or injured, the number one priority is getting them care without fearing you'll go bankrupt to do it. Right. So it's that opening value, it's that shared statement that explicitly names race and connects us. We then name the problem second, not first, as an abrogation of that shared value. And so the harm becomes both to the affected community, because it's important to lift that up, and it becomes a thing that's getting in the way of that shared value that we all purportedly, to some degree, hold or at least want to believe about ourselves. And essentially, the theory of change is that if your words don't spread, they don't work. If your base is not going to carry the message, if they're not going to sing from the songbook, then by definition, the message is not persuasive because no one in the middle is going to hear it. So that's one point. And then the second point is that across geographies, this is not just true of the US, this is true in testing in the UK, it's true in Australia. What we find among the quote unquote middle is that we've had a misunderstanding about how to approach them. So traditionally, most center or center-left parties have approached this group through some permutation of what we think of as the hot dog vendor problem in economics. Essentially, well, they're moderates, they want a moderate solution, they want something in between sort of a left and a right answer. And so 
we will meet them where they are and we will moderate our message. This is how we get things like safe, legal, and rare in abortion discourse during the Clinton years. Or we need comprehensive immigration reform that's tough, fair, and practical in the Obama years. Or of course we should be concerned about the deficit. The way to handle the deficit is to raise revenue. This is where the left or the center-left party tries to make themselves sound like the reasonable adults in the room. I don't know if you have a quick UK equivalent, if this is sort of triggering anything for you. We have many, many equivalents. I feel like there's probably too many to draw on in this moment, but we definitely have this. And I was actually reading something about it the other day um, when Podemos came to power and Syriza in Greece, this exact problem, again, of people on the left trying to make their messages more palatable and in the end appealing to no one. And we've also had that raised a lot around our new opposition leader, Keir Starmer, as well. So yeah, it's very present here. Just making sure what I'm saying has some resonance or familiarity. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So basically the problem with the hot dog vendor approach to the median voter is that by definition, this middle of the road voter doesn't have an opinion. They don't have an ideological view. And if they did have an ideological view, they wouldn't be a swing voter. They would have strongly held opinions about immigrant rights and the environment and women and uh, taxation and, you know, on and on and on and on. So by definition, the way that these people operate, and we see this in testing, I call them the good point people. And what I mean by that is they go like this. Yeah, good point. But also, good point. But yeah, (laughs) good point. By which I mean, they are especially susceptible to what we call anchoring effects. That is having their view changed based on information that is in their environment and sometimes information that has little to absolutely nothing to do with the topic at hand. And so what happens is the message that they hear repeated most frequently becomes, quote unquote, common sense. It becomes what is true and what is correct in the world, because, again, they are not strong partisans. They do not hold strong ideological views. And so when the left parties try to meet into the middle by having some sort of adults in the room moderated message, And the right-wing parties continue to do what they always do, which is throw red meat to their base and go farther and farther and farther to the right in their rhetoric and in their actions. Their base is out repeating. Their base is out rah, 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 right? Make America great again. They've got the hats. They've got the shirts. They've got the flags. They've got the buttons. And so when that middle of the road voter is wandering around and flying into the Central Valley of California or flying into Western Pennsylvania or flying into wherever these kind of more middle places are, and they're looking around and they're thinking to themselves, how do people like me think? What is the dominant notion or idea? And of course, they're not thinking this consciously. And they're surrounded by a sea of red MAGA hats, and they are surrounded by zero blue stronger together hats, which was the Clinton slogan, then what are they left to conclude? And so this is what the right across the globe has understood for generations, that if your words don't spread, they don't work. And if you don't have, quote, brand ambassadors for your idea, there's no way for those ideas to become common sense. 
And so they do not moderate their message. They do not look for a message that is palatable even to the other side. They understand that what they need is a choir singing over and over and over again from their songbook because the middle is capable of believing deeply conservative, regressive things across the board on race, on gender, on economics, et cetera. And they are capable of believing progressive things on these issues. But our side doesn't try to equip the base as a frequent repeater. Ah, see, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I'm never, I don't know why I've never heard it before, but obviously the idea of if you've got people who are on board enough with your message that they're going to go around repeating it, that's much better than everyone hearing it and being like, meh, maybe. Seems like common sense. Exactly as you were just describing. Maybe I'm in the middle. Anyway, let's focus a little bit on the democratic messaging and go a bit deeper. So I want to take us back to the last election in 2016. In a nutshell, I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, but where do you think the Democrats went wrong in terms of their messaging in the last election? Well, (laughs) I said earlier that in order for a story to have coherency, it kind of needs to have certain basic facets. It needs to have an origin story. So it needs to explain to you why the present day situation is what it is, where that comes from, who's to blame, who is the hero. It needs to have, like I said, a villain, and it needs to have a beautiful tomorrow, a promise or an explanation of what you are going to get if you vote for this person or if you take this action. Hillary Clinton had an incredibly challenging path to try to construct a story like that because she didn't have a credible villain. She was, and you know, I'm being pretty forthright here, as is my custom, she was the senator from Wall Street. And so she couldn't cast Wall Street, which was in fact the symbol of the 1% sucking the money that is produced by the majority of people through our efforts. You know, we know that globally what neoliberalism has wrought is a giant vacuum cleaner of a money sucking machine taking the wealth that working people produce globally and sucking it into ever fewer, ever whiter, ever more male hands. And so our populations are feeling greater and greater and greater economic pain. And that economic pain used to be concentrated much more just in the communities that we've intentionally marginalized, right? So in the United States, among Black people, among new immigrants, Asian American Pacific Islanders, obviously Native Americans, But increasingly, the money-sucking machine got hungrier and hungrier, enough so that it also started over uh, white people. And so you have a bunch of white people looking around and wondering, why is it that I feel like I can't make ends meet? Why is it that I feel like I can't even pay for healthcare? Because in the United States, you can't. Why is it that I feel like I can't send my kids to university and I can't take a vacation and both myself and my partner are working more than we ever have before, and yet we're in debt? And so they're looking around for someone to blame. They're looking around for an explanation and an answer. And here comes Donald Trump, and here comes Orban, and here comes Brexit, and here comes Bolsonaro. And here comes the conservative ruling party, the National Party in Australia, and they have an answer for why you are feeling that economic pain, right? It's the Roma, it's migrants, it's refugees, it's 
Southern Europeans, it's Muslims, it's Black people. And they deliver that answer in the time-old tradition of divide and conquer to get us pointing our finger in the wrong direction. Because as long as you're pointing your finger at the brown guy, you're not pointing your finger at the bad guy. So Donald Trump had that origin story and he had that promise of the beautiful tomorrow, which was built out of nostalgia for a past that never actually existed, but was easy to imagine because we'd seen it depicted on television as as it was. And what did Hillary Clinton have? She had, I'm with her, right? She had stronger together. She had an attempted unity message and she had in her defense a pretty progressive platform up until then, a more progressive platform than we'd ever seen a mainstream candidate run, a more progressive platform than Obama had run on for sure. But your platform and your facts and your truth are different than your story. And so she really didn't have an origin story for why people were feeling the economic pain because she couldn't really tell the truth that it was this small, ever more powerful group of incredibly wealthy people who have rigged the rules in their favor because she was part and parcel of allowing that to happen. Mm, Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of the Democratic campaign that's going on now, how's the messaging? (laughs) I mean, again, a broad question, but are they following some of your advice around kind of these shared values and not reinforcing the opponent's frame and having a common enemy? Are they ticking any of those boxes? Yeah. I I mean, I think it depends on the moment. It depends on the day. And all politics is complicated. To me, US politics feel especially complicated. That may just be an affect of me Knowing it best, it may be all equally complicated, and I'm just not aware of everything going on in other places. I I definitely concede that. So in the U.S., there's the campaigns that we run through what we call IEs, independent expenditures. There's what the party says, and then there's what the campaign itself says. And those are all a mishmash and an amalgam. And so I think a lot of the messaging, and again, I'm biased, but the messaging that I'm helping run in our battleground swing states, which is not coming from the campaign itself, I think is spot on. I think we're doing a fantastic job. I think we're seeing incredible movement and momentum and things going our way in states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Ohio and Minnesota and in Senate races in various battlegrounds. And I'm incredibly proud of the work that our organizers and activists are doing. I think we're killing it. But you asked me about the messaging coming from the Biden campaign itself. I think there are certain times when they are hitting all the right notes. And those right notes are when they talk about compassion, when they talk about care, when they talk about restoring sort of a sense of decency and kindness. We can see in all of the testing we do that that's something people are deeply, deeply hungry for. And that is sort of what we would call a brand match to Biden. I think where they struggle, and I don't blame them for struggling here, is that, you know, Joe Biden does not have the most progressive record. He's certainly not a young man. He is a long, long, long time creature of national politics. And so people's hunger for something different, for an overturning of the status quo, for not going back to business as usual it's very hard for a Biden campaign to sell something like that because it's not a perfect match, right? It has to feel credible that the product that you're selling, the candidate, is a match for the branding that you've given to that product. 
And so, you know, on the side of presenting him as someone compassionate, someone caring, someone decent, someone who believes in bringing people together or someone who believes in science, someone who believes in listening. I think that that's a very credible story to tell. And I think that they're telling that pretty well. I think on the side of being bold, of overturning, of rewriting the rules, that's a harder story for them to tell. And there's an appetite and hunger for that. And I think that that's why you see, you know, kind of middling enthusiasm among a democratic base that we really desperately need to be impassioned. Mm. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk about some specific messages which you've critiqued in your work that I feel have particular kind of relevance here in the UK as well. So one of them is the abundance rather than scarcity narrative. And then the other one is law and order. So let's start with the kind of abundancy scarcity one. You've talked about how we as progressives need to be talking in a different frame than the kind of economic scarcity narrative that we've inherited um, and activating different emotions and values in people because of that. Could you unpack a bit more about that and what that could look like in practice? Yeah. So I'll take it even a step farther and say that I believe, and again, this is based on testing in the US and I don't pretend that everything is a one-to-one match. It definitely isn't. So I don't want to kind of get out in front of my skis as we would say here. But if we're talking about the economy, we're losing. If we are talking about what the economy wants or what the economy needs or such and such policy will help the economy, such and such policy will grow the economy, such and such policy will boost the economy. If we as progressives, regardless of where we're sitting, are implying in our messaging that the proper and correct job of public policy is to serve this abstraction, which is the economy, because newsflash, the economy doesn't exist. It's a convention by which we measure human activity. And so we are far better positioned when we talk about people's economic well-being, being able to make ends meet having messaging that is rooted in lived experience that people can sort of visualize in their heads the scene of the person who has enough in their wallet to you know buy the dinner and they're not working so many hours that they never see their family rather than talking about serving an abstraction which is this great god the economy so that's one thing and then the other thing is around the scarcity narrative we inadvertently reinforce it all the time so when we say for example it costs X, Y, Z to send a child to school and it costs ABC to imprison people, right? I don't know if you do this in the UK, but in the United States, we are big fans of these posters where we'll compare two things, right? It's this much to do immigrant detention and it's this much to do universal preschool. Can you sort of imagine what I'm talking about? Yeah, exactly. We do that a lot, yeah. So- What that does is it says the reason to do school and not prison or preschool and not detention or whatever the two, you know, bad thing compared to the good thing is that we are now policy making on clearance that we should pick the school thing because it's the cheaper option. That is the definition, I would argue, of a morally bankrupt argument. It's basically saying we have no higher order principle. We have no actual values-based reason. We just think this one is better because it's cheaper. And it reinforces scarcity. It sends the message that there is a sum total of however many dollars or however many pounds or however many euros, et cetera, to spend. 
And now we're going to have an argument over allocation, whether they should be spent over here on schools, over here on prisons, or whatever it is we're comparing. When in fact, we know that there is plenty of money. There is so much money. Look at the number of people who have literally minted a fortune on top of the fortune they already possessed in this pandemic. There are people who are profiting off of the death and decimation of their fellow humans and citizens. There is plenty of freaking money. And so we do not need to be sending the message that the reason why policing is bad is because it's expensive. Policing is bad because it's bad. Mm, Yeah. I mean, like I said, that's definitely a trap that we consistently fall into here of reinforcing the opponent's frame that there's no magic money tree and we all just need to tighten our belts. And it's an either or when it comes to everything from education to healthcare. And we've done a lot of work on this as Neon and Neff. But um, the second frame that I wanted to come to was this law and order one. And this is something that I feel like there's so many parallels between Biden and Starmer on this. They both kind of, you know, I think this is true of Biden, have kind of military back backgrounds or kind of uh, law and order backgrounds themselves. And the Democrats clearly want to show that they're strong on law and order issues. And, you know, we had that choice quote from Joe Biden saying, do I look like a radical socialist with a soft spot for rioters? I think I saw you tweet about that. And then we also had kind of around a similar time, Keir Starmer come out in the wake of the BLM protests saying things like, nobody should be saying anything about defunding the police. I was the director of public prosecutions for five years. And, you know, I've worked with police forces and my support for the police is very strong. And that the Black Lives Matter wasn't a movement. It's a moment that had kind of lost its way. And there was obviously a kind of big backlash around that. And yet we have seen Starmer returning to these uh, law and order nationalistic narratives in the latest Labour broadcast that has gone out as well. So I'm really interested to kind of hear your thoughts on this. Is it a good idea for progressives to be trying to demonstrate that they're strong on law and order issues or do they just kind of alienate everyone? It's a terrible idea. Ah, I thought so. (laughs) It is always a terrible idea to wander onto your opposition's field and agree to fight a battle on their turf and on their terms. If you are having their conversation, you are already losing. The only way to change the conversation is to have a different conversation. And so what does that mean? It means that you do not give in to their frame and you do not give in to their trap. And I mean, there are so many things that I want to say about this. We have tested when Biden has said those, what I like to call genuflecting at the altar of law and order. It's the same impetus that we already discussed that, you know, you have to go meet people in the middle and that's where people are at and so on and so forth. Newsflash, there is no place that people are at. And when you start talking about law and order, what you do for this conflicted middle is you activate in them this fear and this threat, and you reinforce the idea that the world is a scary, dangerous place, that there's, you know, madmen and bad people lurking around every corner that you can't even go to Detroit, you can't even go to Milwaukee, which of course, let me just be clear, is code for Black people, right? All of this, there's nothing new under the sun. This is all just dog whistling. It is just an extended dog whistle to the Republican or the conservative base. 
And so instead of doing that, which basically just activates in the middle, this desire for a strong man. And if you do that, they're not going to want daddy light. They're not going to want the B minus version of the authoritarian. What we see in our testing is that when you activate this hunger for law and order, you send swing voters into conservative arms. Because again, you say what this campaign is, is a battle over who can be tougher. And so they're like, oh, okay, well, if that's what I'm supposed to be selecting on, then I'm going to pick the guy who, you know, blathers and who tear gases peaceful protesters in order to stand in front of a church and awkwardly hold a Bible that he's clearly never touched in the entirety of his life, except maybe when he couldn't find rolling papers to smoke a joint. Sorry, now I'm editorializing. (laughs) If he did, we'd all be much better off. So what do you do instead? What you do instead is you embrace what we call the race class narrative. So you actually expose what they're doing and you feed what people's actual desire is. When people are hungering or are baited to hunger for law and order, what they're actually seeking is a sense of normalcy, a sense of safety, a sense of okayness, a sense that the world is going to make sense. And so what does that message sound like? It sounds like this, no matter what we look like, what our postal code, where we come from, most of us just want to make it through our day and know that our loved ones will be well. But today, a powerful few target, harass, detain, and even kill Black people while politicians point the finger trying to divide us. They hope that by scaring us by race and by place, will look the other way while they take away what every one of our families need to get and stay well. We know what keeps us safe. It's communities where we look out for each other and where everyone can make ends meet and set their kids off to the brightest possible future. We refuse to take their bait and be divided. We will stand with and for each other to pick new leaders who believe in liberty and justice for all, no exceptions. Oh, and uh, I just, I'm just like, please come here and just like go for a drink with Keir Starmer. Just have a word in his ear. I, you know, I, I feel like you could persuade him. I really do. We do need to start to wrap up, which I'm very forlorn about because I would really like to continue this conversation. But going down that road that you've just opened up so beautifully, exploring this question of hope. Obviously, it's been an incredibly difficult year for most of us with COVID globally, but, you know, also the national struggles that we're fighting here. It's, you know, Brexit is impending and there obviously you have your election in just a few weeks. So whatever happens, whether Trump wins or Biden and we crash out with a no deal or we get, you know, something, let's be honest, it's still going to be a bag of But we need as progressives to be able to tell a message that is hopeful in some way, whether that's, you know, on climate change or on healthcare or in education, we're never going to not need that. (laughs) People are never going to not need hope. And you've given us some really great tips for that already, but I was hoping that you could kind of maybe leave us with a few more gems on how progressives should be framing the future, framing what comes next, kind of win, lose or draw. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me underscore that Biden is winning. 
Biden is going to win this election and Biden will be sworn in as our next democratically elected president. It's actually incredibly important to speak out. And this isn't just because I'm sitting a mile away from Berkeley and giving you my woo-woo nonsense. Um, I'm the least woo-woo Californian you will ever encounter. It's because part of the narrative battle is that people believe what they hear repeated more frequently. Messages that are repeated more frequently are rated to be more credible, more plausible, and more popular than messages that are novel. And so part of what the right wing does, part of the manufacture of despair actually serves their purpose. I'm sorry to get really dark for a moment, and then I promise I will produce you hope. The ultimate aim of any guerrilla warfare, and that's exactly what these right-wing forces are, they are a tiny and shrinking minority of our populations that are clinging to the last vestiges of patriarchy, of white supremacy. They know their days are numbered. They know that our populations are growing more diverse, more queer, more radical, more into opening our eyes to the mythology that neoliberalism was that was sold to us and we're not going to buy it anymore. And they're scared to death. And just like anyone, when they are scared to death, they lash out at their strongest because they know that their days are numbered. And so the way that we manufacture hope is number one, we speak the truth that we want into being all the time. And for every time we feel despondent and dejected and we have fear and we have anxiety, which believe me, I have every moment of every day, we do not say that out loud. We talk about that with our friends. We talk about that with our therapists, but that is not our message. What we say on stage is we have proven through this year that whatever you throw at us we will come together and we will come back stronger. In the spring, we delivered masks and we delivered meals. In the summer, we delivered protests to defend Black lives. And this fall, we are coming together to deliver Black dreams. Nothing is going to get in our way because we see past your lies and your attempts to make us fear each other and to make us give up hope, because we know that's all you got. Your ideas are broken and nobody's buying them. We got each other and we have been through so much and come out the other side. There is nothing that is going to get in the way of us making the future that we want for ourselves and our children. So just that, yeah, just just that. <laughs> on, on, we'll repeat that message, um, and it should work. I mean, I've literally got goosebumps. Worked on me. Thank you so much, Anna, as always, for being with us to share your wisdom and insights. Utterly invaluable. Sadly, that is all we've got time for. And at Shankar Asario, thank you so much. If people want to find out more about your work and hear more of your gems, where can they go? What should they read? Yeah, so we put all of our messaging guides both on asocommunications.com, which is my own website. But actually what I would recommend, the best one-stop shopping is to go to the race class narrative action.com site 
That is uh, a project that I work very, very closely on. It's where we use the race class narrative that I've referenced and I've sort of given examples of. And you'll find there are ads that we've made and are running. And most importantly, you'll find a messaging guide called We Make the Future. Inside the We Make the Future messaging guide, uh, there are links to our social media. We Make the Future is on Twitter, it's on Facebook, it's on Instagram. And what it is, is our attempt to show, not tell, how to use good messaging in real time. So whatever is going on, that's the tweet to write about it instead of the tweet that you would write left to your own devices. All of the ads that we make are deliberately public and open source. Our intent is for people to be able to repost them and use them. Obviously, I don't know how well that works in an American accent when um, that probably sounds pretty odd to folks where you are, but certainly the ideas in them are intentionally up for grabs. So follow We Make the Future on all the social media. Thank you. And I also recommend for listeners, I know a lot of colleagues and friends of mine attended your messaging course, Anat, and Riz, who works at the TUC, put out a really great um, communications video, which was actually using the race clash narrative. So if folks want to head over to the TUC website and Twitter and look for Rizwan Hussain's video, you'll also see what this can look like in a UK context as well. And if you want a relentless, do as I say, not as I tweet, snark fueled fast, you can follow me on Twitter. I try to follow my own advice and I would say that I do 85 to 90% of the time. I say what I'm for instead of what I'm against. I show you really positive, good, effective content that calls out villains, but also creates hope. And then occasionally I just get so mad that I go off. And I, as a follower, can vouch for all of those things and and they're all equally uh, valuable. So I would definitely recommend giving Anat a follow. Lovely listener. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. Sadly, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.